you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to be with you today. My thanks to Austin Cross for hosting Monday and Tuesday. He'll be back with you tomorrow and Friday as usual, of course. This is my one day. I'll be with you this week as I've, I've got a number of different events that are going on. Last night, I was at UC Santa Barbara for the Roop Great Debate, which I moderated on homelessness and housing challenges. Terrific audience there in Campbell Hall and just a real pleasure to be on the UCSB campus last night for that event. Uh, Back home uh, around midnight and with you this morning. So glad to join you on Air Talk. Coming up later on the program, we're going to be talking about the remarkable story of a World War I hero who uh, ended up with a legacy far more mixed than you would have thought in the earlier years of his life. But we begin with California legislation that would mandate uh, an approach to reading, which is phonics-based. Joining us is the legislator who has written the bill that's been introduced, Blanca Rubio, Democratic State Assembly member who represents West Covina, Glendora, and surrounding communities. Thank you so much, Assembly Member Rubio, for joining us on Air Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, we're we're all aware of the reading wars, as they've been dubbed, the debate over how best to teach readings, uh, reading to kids. Here we've got the science of reading that uh, has been heavily researched that you would like to see universally used in California public schools. What's your reason for introducing this as a mandate? Well, um, it's no no surprise to anybody that uh, California doesn't rank well in uh, reading or student literacy. Currently, four in ten California third grade students leave elementary school without proper literacy. And uh, I uh, spent 16, 16 years in the classroom. I taught kindergarten, first grade, and fourth grade. And so I not only as a legislator know I'm aware of what's happening, but I, when I was in the classroom, um, I saw it firsthand. So I... Uh, I'm advocating and making sure that uh, our kids get the the proper education that they deserve. On top of, again, my personal experience, I am a second language learner. I was born in Mexico and didn't come to the United States until I was um, six the first time and seven the following time. And so uh, this, I believe, will help uh, low-income students, uh, second language learners, and quite frankly, all of our students in California. And what currently is the mix of the way in which reading is instructed? I know we've gone back and forth between um, whole language. We've had um, uh, open court was was a very popular mm-hmm. curriculum that was used in many public schools like LA Unified. So what's the range now of what's offered? So, so uh there is an adoption period. Every 10 years, California has to adopt a new curriculum, and there's usually three programs to choose from. I uh, taught open court when I was a, a teacher, and it was a great program, but it's just a program. 
um, as fabulous as they, they can be, there is no real science base uh, behind how to teach the program, not necessarily that the programs are bad. It's just the research that has been conducted indicates that we need to teach uh, kids reading in a certain way. And so just a program to have a program doesn't necessarily work. It's the the, the methods and the, the strategies that are, are implemented in the classroom that make the students actually uh, be more literate. We're talking with California Assembly member, Democrat from West Covina and surrounding area, Blanco Rubio, who has introduced the bill, which calls for uh, the, the Science of Reading program to be used statewide in California. Also with us is Dean of USC's Rossier School of Education, Pedro Noguera. Dean Noguera, welcome back to Air Talk. What are your thoughts about Assembly member Rubio's bill? Uh, so thanks, Larry. Great to be with you. Um, I, you know, I certainly understand the assembly member's concern. Um, you know, there are far too many kids in schools not learning to read, um, and our proficiency rates show it. What I'm concerned about, though, is mandating to districts because, you know, I mean, although assembly member Blanco is a former educator herself, what we run the risk of is politicizing education. And I think what we want is to make education as non-political as possible. This really should be coming from the State Department of Education. They should be providing guidance to schools as well as professional development to teachers. Um, because we know that a foundation um, in, in, in literacy and in phonics is gonna be helpful for developing literacy throughout a child's life. So. I, I'm, I'm concerned about mandates. Um, we don't use mandates with the local control funding formula. Um, I actually think we need guidance there, uh, guidelines, and I think the same is needed right now for reading. Dean Noguera, so are there circumstances where you think it would be better to teach reading not using a phonics-centric approach? I think all kids will benefit from phonics, but what we know is that phonics is, it's kind of like training wheels. Um, when you're getting started, phonics are essential. But as you get to be more proficient as a reader, you need more. You need, um, um, you need to develop um, good comprehension skills. You need to develop writing skills, research skills, um, speaking skills. You need to understand how to uh, distinguish between fake news and, and, and fact-based in information on the internet. So we need a comprehensive approach to literacy. And uh, what concerns me is this is a bit narrow um, and that um, it actually may harm kids in the future. Right now, 50% of Americans don't read a book in a single year. And that is a sign that, as a nation, we're in trouble with respect to literacy. We're talking with the dean of USC's Rossier School of Education, Pedro Nogueira. Also with us, Democratic State Assembly member Blanca Rubio, who has introduced the bill, which calls on California schools to use the science of reading approach, which is a phonic-based way uh, to teach reading in public schools. I'd love to hear from you your thoughts about this. We're at 866 893 to, particularly if you are a teacher, you've been a teacher, or you have thoughts particularly about uh, having a, a particular phonics-based approach to reading versus others, we're at 866-893-5722. We're talking about Assembly Bill 2222, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. 
please include your location and first name. Assemblymember Rubio, you want to respond to the concerns of, of Dean Noguera? Absolutely. Uh, hello, uh, Dean Noguera. So, so yes, I uh, understand the concern about mandates, but in reality, that we have mandates all the time. Uh, when a new curriculum is introduced, uh, we only have three choices. Uh, you know, usually it's three choices, so that even though it's not a mandate, we only have the choice of three curricula. So, so I uh, share your concern. I was in the classroom for 16 years, and that's why I'm working uh, with the different advocate groups. And uh, it is a mandate, but again, uh, pretty much all of our curriculum, our, all of our uh, state standards are mandates. And so I would love to work with you, uh, uh, Dean Oguera, to make sure that we get this right. Because at the end of the day, it's all about kids. It's about teaching kids how to read. And um, we can't just say, oh, well, this is not going to work. I was taught in my, my uh, teacher preparation program that data and statistics was the way to identify learning gaps. And um, I believe that the science of reading has done that research, and uh, we can join forces to make sure that I get this bill correct and that we do what's best for students. Currently, California is 48 uh, in our literacy rate. Uh, Mississippi used to be 49th, uh, and they've implemented the science of reading, and they're currently at uh, their 22nd in the nation. And so something's happening in Mississippi, and I know that with talent, the talent that we have within our teachers, our schools, if we uh, all decide that this is something that will help our kids, I think at the end of the day, it's about helping children. And I uh, expressed that I, was, I, was a, I am a second language learner, and we have a lot of that population that's falling through the cracks. And so uh, a database science-based uh, program, I think, is the key to at least um, start gaining ground on our status as 48th in the nation. Uh, I want to ask you, Pedro Nogueira, about uh, what the Assembly member just mentioned about that there is science behind, research behind uh, this approach that would be mandated in her bill. One of the critiques of the ways that we've taught reading historically is that we haven't done very good research on it. Even the research that's been touted hasn't been particularly high quality. And and I, I wonder if you can speak to that issue. Do we have multiple methods for teaching, reading that really bear fruit based on research? Yeah, I, so I agree that the science of reading is, is on, you know, there's solid research behind it and it's evidence-based, but it is important to look back at what happened with open court, which was a phonics-based curriculum. Um, and, you know, it, it, it didn't bring about the, the lift that we hoped for. And, and that's because it's not good enough to simply mandate a curriculum. You then have to provide support to teachers in schools to work with kids in their classrooms. If you don't do that, then you can mandate all kinds of things and not see the results. Um, many of our schools lack the, the personnel, lack the training to provide uh, to do this work well. And, and as I said, if we look at what happened with open court, um, a lot of kids got stuck um, because simply mastering phonics will not make you a fluent reader. And uh, and that that's one of the things that concerns me when we overemphasize phonics at the expense of other aspects of literacy. Let's take a listener call from Nadra in Burbank. You're on Air Talk. What do you think? Hi, I think this is a horrible idea 
They've done this in other states. They're driving away teachers out of the industry because you're trying to tie their hands. Let's treat them like professionals. We can give them professional development without mandating, and let's pay them. They're underfunded. They're underpaid as they are, and our schools are underfunded, and this is not the way that we get a highly literate society. We have to fully fund our education system. I live in Burbank and our teachers have not had a raise. They just are now getting a raise after like something ridiculous, like six or seven years of not having a raise. And now you're going to write a law to tie their hands in class and what they can do. Just watch them leave like they're doing in other states. I think this is a horrible idea. And I think there's other ways, other things that we can do to improve outcomes for our students. Nadra, thank you for your calls. Carolyn Beverly-Hale says, I understand the Assembly members' concerns and wanting to mandate so that we're focused on phonics and skill building, but I also understand there's a lack of training once curriculum is adopted. Uh, Teachers need to be trained to perceive when a child is struggling. Carol, thank you for that. Uh, Assembly member Rubio, your, your response to the two listener comments. Uh, yes, so absolutely the training, uh, as a matter of fact, is part of, of the bill, uh, is making sure that uh, teachers and uh, administrators get the proper training, but also to include uh, the, the science of reading in the teacher credentialing programs. So when I'm going to school to get a credential, that would be part of the curriculum to make sure that the teachers are, are taught um, how to do this. And, um, you know, we're calling it a mandate, but again, I want to remind us that everything is a mandate. Again, when you have three programs to choose from, uh, it's not necessarily free choice because you have three that are only allowed to be um, chosen from. And to respond to the open court uh, uh, discussion, I taught open court, and I absolutely correct that it's not the solve-all. It was phonics-based, but I uh, transitioned to fourth grade, and we continued with the 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 reading skills, the comprehension skills in fourth grade. Now, the problem is that one district is doing one program, the other district is doing another program, and then a third district is doing a third program. And I taught in a high-poverty school, uh, Fontana Unified, where I had a third of the the, the students were African-American, a third Latino, and a third white. What they had in common was that they were all poor. And a lot of those poor communities tend to have kids that move from school to school. And so if you have open court in one school and, uh, you know, the other two programs at the other schools, the kids are having to relearn. And the teachers, it's actually more difficult for teachers because now they have to catch them up. And so, so as a classroom teacher, I can tell you that, yes, they are correct. We, and we struggle with uh, teaching kids that are far behind. However, if we don't start with a science-based, research-based program that can be uh, implemented across the districts, it won't matter what, what program you're teaching because the skills that you are teaching are consistent throughout California. And uh, another comment about uh, uh, teachers getting paid. Absolutely, we want to pay teachers, but that's, that's different than trying to teach kids. Uh, we can have the conversation on how underpaid uh, teachers are, because I was a teacher, uh, but I think that consistency is key. I think if we implement uh, the, the teacher credential programs to make sure that they teach 
uh, the science of reading. Uh, we provide the professional development for the teachers. As a classroom teacher, every week we have professional development. So this can be easily implemented into our regular pro professional development uh, days. And, um, you know, working with the, the Department of Education is, in fact, the key to make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay. I want to thank you, uh, Blanca Rubio, Democratic State Assembly member of West Covina and surrounding communities, who introduced Assembly Bill 2222, which would require schools in California, public schools, to teach the science of reading, a phonics-based approach. Uh, Joan in Anaheim said, My oldest kid took a while to get into phonics. As a result, struggled. I have younger kids who took a phonics approach. They did great. So Joan pointing out what she sees as uh, the different approaches that that uh, did or didn't work with her kids. Thanks so much for your comments. Our thanks as well to Pedro Nogueira, Dean of USC's Rossier School of Education. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we're going to talk about the re-election of El Salvador's president. We'll find out what uh, people there think about his leadership and what some critics around the world are saying about his methods. Back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with the author of Beverly Hills Spy, the double agent war hero who helped Japan attack Pearl Harbor. Ronald Drapkin will be with us coming up in just a few minutes. But right now, we turn our attention to the recent El Salvador presidential election in which Nayib Bukele was re-elected in a landslide. Uh, it was reportedly a 70% margin for the last leg of the ballots that were collected. The re-election's highly controversial, uh, considering presidents have been unable to run for consecutive presidential terms until a 2021 a Supreme Court decision in El Salvador. Uh, those That was made by judges who Bukele put in office at the start of his term. There's also been criticism from human rights organizations about the way he's cracked down on crime that was rampant in El Salvador, but uh, finding about 1% of the country's population behind bars in the wake of his action. Joining us to talk about 
Bukele's leadership is assistant professor in political science at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, Lucas Perello. Thank you very much, Professor Perello, for joining us on, on AirTalk. Um, is this a trustworthy election result? Is this really indicative of the popularity of Bukele? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would say that the election result that we saw a couple of weeks ago is truly indicative of how popular President Bukele currently is in El Salvador. In the most recent presidential election, he won approximately with 85% of votes. The runner-up, a candidate from the left-wing and traditional party, the FMLN, was backed with barely 6.4% of votes. And according to his victory speech, uh, President Bukele expects that his political party, New Ideas, will win up to 58 of the 60 seats in the uh, country's unicameral legislature. And how much of this popularity and political dominance relates to his crackdown on gang activity? Well, Mr. Bukele's popularity comes down, I would say, to a single factor, and that is El Salvador's stunning crime drop, uh, which is is a consequence of his crackdown on crime. Now, for decades, maras or gangs terrorized the local population in El Salvador through threats, extortion, and murders. The most famous gangs were Mara Salvatrucha and Mara Barro Dieciocho. And what Bukele did once he became president was that he adopted iron fist policies. More specifically, on March 27, 2022, he asked the country's legislative assembly to pass or declare a month-long state of emergency. This suspends constitutional rights and also makes it easier for the security apparatus, including the police and the military, to make arrests, uh, uh, which in theory were uh, supposedly against the gangs. Now, the Legislative Assembly has renewed the state of emergency every month or on a monthly basis. Now, I think it's important to take a look at the numbers in this case. Since he took office back in 2019, intentional homicide rates have decreased from 38 per 100,000 inhabitants in that year to 7.8 in wow. per 100,000 inhabitants in 2022. That is very well That's below the American average. Yeah. Absolutely, it is. Wow. So, so much, yeah. much of his popularity does stem from his uh, successful crackdown on crime. How has he accomplished that? Well, he's basically done this through the states of emergency, which is renewed on a monthly basis by the uh, by the national legislature. Um, now, what the state of assembly again implies is that it does suspend constitutional rights and it loosens the rules that you are required to make arrests. And basically, what's happened here is that uh, the state of emergency has suspended basic civil liberties and security forces have locked up approximately 75,000 people in El Salvador. That is, I would say, I think 1.7% of the country's population or one in 45 adults is currently now in prison. So what we've seen in El Salvador in these last years is that there's been this um, marked uh, crackdown on crime that has specifically uh, targeted uh, the gangs, but has also led to other consequences within the country. There's also a lot of uh, reports uh, being made right now about uh, violations of human rights taking place in El Salvador, about people who are innocent, who are also being detained in these mass arrests. So there's, I would say, two different sides to the story. One that, yes, the policies have effectively been able to crack down on crime, 
But on the other, on the other hand, there's also important consequences for, a, and this is also affected individuals who were not necessarily participants, right? in the gangs or participants in, in crime activities in the country. Now, for their family members who might be speaking out in their defense and saying, you know, my, my son or my husband, you know, we're not involved in criminal activity, are, are they able to make their case to the public or, or is that squelched? Well, that's, um, it's kind of, it's, it's difficult. I would say that what we've seen in El Salvador during the state of emergency or as a consequence of the state of emergency is that both police and soldiers have routinely arrested citizens and they also send them to prison indefinitely without necessarily providing a reason. And in many cases that I, I talked to, because um, I was in El Salvador during the, the, during the election, um, many of the people who are sent to prison don't have access to a lawyer and they don't, don't also have access to to communication with their loved ones or their family members. So the situation for uh, those who have been arrested, um, um, especially for the families of those who have been arrested at this moment, is quite complicated. Professor, thank you very much for being with us and giving us the very latest on the election results and the popularity of President Bukele in El Salvador. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. That's Lucas Pereyo, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Also joining us and quite close to home from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, Assistant Professor of History, Andrea Onyate Madrazo. Professor Onyate Madrazo, so good to have you back with us. We appreciate it. Hi, Larry. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's great to be able to speak with you today. I was just and with your listeners, of I, course. Sure. I was just wondering if, <laughs> if you have any sense of Salvadoran Americans, how they're responding. And and I ask that because, you know, I, I remember back when Duterte was elected in the Philippines, and there are a lot of concerns about uh, him being a strong man and, and the way that um, he used police power in the Philippines. But, but in so many conversations that I had with Southern California Filipinos, there was a real, a lot of support for him. Like, he's bringing law and order to, to our home country, and our family members there are safer. There was a lot of support. Do you see that kind of thing among the Salvadoran communities of, of Southern California? Yeah, Larry, um, I want to just preface by saying that I myself am not Salvadoran, although I very much love the country and have studied it for many years. But I, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, by and large, Salvadorans in the United States and in Southern California support Bukele in a reflection of how Salvadorans living in El Salvador support him for exactly the reasons that you're saying, right? They are hearing back from their families about how they are now feeling safe. They are no longer needing to pay um, what was called rentas, which was essentially a tax to these gangs. Anyone that had any type of commerce was a victim of that extortion, essentially. Um, and they are those that are living here that are able to travel back are able to go and, you know, be be in their country, travel around their country by car, um, send remittances and trust that those remittances are going to go to their families. So the support that Bukele has transcends um, national borders for, for exactly the reasons that you brought up. Yes. 
And and then there are the human rights issues, which Professor Pareo uh, talked about. And, you know, what just to elaborate on that a bit, what are some of the concerns about, first of all, him him getting a second six year mm-hmm. term, the changing of the Constitution? Um, we were just talking uh, with with some guests about a documentary that's Oscar nominated this year for about what the same thing that happened in Uganda, and you know where the mm-hmm. where the terms where the terms are changed so that the president can stay on indefinitely. So, what are the concerns of of human rights activists about um, about President Bukele doing this? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you mentioned, there was a constitutional change in 2021 to allow for immediate re-election, essentially for Bukele to be able to be re-elected consecutively. That was not permitted before, and there were some modifications that had to be made so that he could take essentially a leave of absence from his functions as president so he could devote himself to the campaign. And that was, as your um, first speaker, Lucas Perello, said, controversial in the sense that people in the country that are members of the opposition were pushing back against this and the legality of it. Um, El Salvador now has a limit where, theoretically, Bukele would not be able to run again. Having said that, Bukele now controls the people that are making the laws, and he therefore has the ability to change the Constitution, and many suspect, and I think rightfully so, that that is something that will happen if his popularity continues um, over, he has an extra five years, a five-year mandate, um, that he may choose to do that to perpetuate himself in in power. And there are serious human rights concerns, uh, as you mentioned. Um, and some of these uh, numbers that Lucas Perello was, was giving us about, you know, the number of people that are in jail, one yeah. in 45 adults. El Salvador has now the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Um, There is a center for the confinement of terrorism in Tecoluca, San Vicente, where many of these prisoners uh, have been taken. And there's a lot of um, pushback from human rights advocates, from family members of these detained. Lawyers are saying that, you know, they don't really have access to their clients. Um, the judicial processes to try these um, alleged gang members and terrorists are quite opaque. There's no um, real sort of transparency in in the criminal justice system anymore. There's been some very suspicious deaths that have happened in prisons under pretty um, strange circumstances. So, so that is a reality that human rights and also democracy, democracy in the sense of checks and balances, um, democracy in the sense of divisions of power, an independent judiciary have all taken a very big hit. And you mentioned, you know, Duterte in the Philippines, you also mentioned Uganda. I think one of the things that is so interesting about El Salvador that goes beyond uh, El Salvador is that it's a microcosm for something that I'm observing as a historian. We tend to take kind of longer views on on what's happening that I'm observing happening in many places um, around the world, which is that the, the value that maybe someone like you or I place on democracy, 
on all these things like checks and balances, independent uh, branches of government, uh, procedural elections, term limits, etc., don't have an intrinsic value for everyone in the way that I think we assumed for a very long time. And that is one of the reasons that we can explain Bukele's over 80% approval rating. Some even put the number at 90% approval rating uh, in El Salvador. And it's that for many Salvadorans, the vast majority of them, security, when they've been in a situation of um, such terror for yeah. so many years, takes priority. They, they may right? feel like things- the, the democratic principle, the earlier democratic principles are a luxury. They're so desperate for personal safety mm-hmm. that that's a trade-off they're willing to make. But of course, the question is, if they're willing to make that now, are they going to be willing to make that in the future, particularly if there's a further erosion of democratic rights? What, that you is know, a great... what happens mm-hmm. if journalists aren't able to report on what's happening in, in prisons and what's happening with the yeah. legal system? And I need to, to wrap, but just real quickly, Professor, to what extent are journalists able to cover this? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's a very slippery slope. Uh, because there's no guarantee of what's going to happen within the next five years or the next 10 when we erode these institutions and basically dismiss their value we are left in an unknown uncharted territory and the independence of the media and the ability to report on this is already suffering one of the primary salvador newspapers that is has been reporting negatively on some of these human rights abuses some of they reported that perhaps Bukele had struck a deal with the gangs. That's a separate issue, which we don't have time to discuss. They're now operating from Costa Rica because they were not able to do their job and they were getting mm. um, all sorts of threats and persecutions in El Salvador. Wow. So from a different lens, but, you know, we've seen these strong men yeah. come in erode democratic institutions, and the media is one of the first things to go. El Faro is that publication you were just referring to. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. That's Andrea Onyate Madrazo, Assistant Professor of History at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up, the remarkable story of a hero of World War I uh, moves to Hollywood, hobnobs with celebrities, while serving as an intelligence agent for the Japanese military, feeding information prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. We'll talk with the author of the book, Beverly Hills Spy, Ronald Drapkin, when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Harole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. 
what hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Frederick Rutland was the first pilot to take off and land an airplane on a ship. He did it during the largest naval battle of World War I. It gave Rutland a high profile in his home country of England. He went on to become an authority on aircraft carriers and military planes, an inspirational story if that was his full legacy. The complexity of Frederick Rutland's life is told in Ronald Drapkin's new book, Beverly Hills Spy, the double-agent war hero who helped Japan attack Pearl Harbor. Ronald, so good to have you with us. Great to be here, Larry. So Rutland's life is incredible, but it's also fascinating how you ended up writing this book. Tell us how it began as a search for information about your grandfather's associates. Yeah, uh, I grew up on the west side of Los Angeles, and I sort of knew always that my my father had worked in U.S. intelligence. Um, didn't get a lot of didn't details. Didn't get more than that, but... <laughs> didn't get a lot of details, but he and his old army buddies would get together, and they'd talk about, um, you know, chasing communists around uh, Los Angeles in the old days. And after he passed away, um, I was going through his things, and I, I had clues that my grandfather was also in intelligence. I was thinking, maybe my dad got a job through Connections Family or business. Yeah. And uh, there was a pandemic on, you might recall, and it, I, I was kind of bored. And so I started filing uh, information requests with the FBI on all these spies in old-time Los Angeles. And uh, the one on Frederick Rutland came back. Um, you know, it's funny when the FBI sends you a uh, the reply to uh, to a freedom of information request. There's actually only two things, two possible answers. One is here you go, and two is we have nothing for you. And uh, when they have something for you, they don't say uh, like, "Oh, we just declassified this is really hot stuff." You just get it. And I was reading this thing; it had just been declassified. Wow! And I was like, "Holy moly!" Your timing was incredible to get this this information. So um, Rutland had this extraordinary life. I mentioned about where he was a pioneer during World War One, and so it, he's well known in in Britain after World War One. Uh, very famous, um, multiple uh, gold medals. Um, his name was Rutland from the Battle of Jutland, and I think that just really <laughs> helped it go viral yeah. back then. Yeah, because that was the biggest naval battle of of the war, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. So that had a ring to it. But he also had some aspects of his life that garnered less sympathetic coverage, like um, what was called wife swapping. Um, yes. When, when uh, his wife uh, got involved with a friend of his and he got involved with a friend's wife. Yeah, that was um, for a British officer in the 1910s, 20s. That was just not done. Yeah. yeah. And and so did that start to a, a bit erode his uh, reputation, would you say? Yeah. He already was having a few issues due to his very strident personality and his lower class upbringing. Um, his colleagues were more like Oxford, Cambridge, you know, upper class folks. And he was not. And with the wife swapping, um, they really were starting to have problems with him after the war ended. And, and let's talk about how class plays into the military, because it seems to me this is a big part of the story, is, as you tell it in Beverly Hills Spy. So he comes, uh, you know, from from uh, low income background. But, you know, who are the people that he's relating to during the war in, in military service? 
Yeah, he was, uh, like, as you were saying, Larry, he was a poor-born, lower-class uh, fellow who had grown up overlooking a naval base. And he had only joined the Royal Navy as, a, as an enlisted sailor, a 14-year-old who had lied about his age to get in there. And he had become a pilot, an officer, and a war hero out of sheer competence, intelligence, and drive. And so here he is, this low-class fellow, and he's surrounded by all these upper-class Englishmen. And Sort of uh, born and bred to the Royal Navy. Yeah, exactly. And he just wasn't really fitting in. All right. Uh, and, and so he finds himself stymied in advancing uh, militarily. What leads him to cozy up to Japanese military officials? You know, he was just really getting uh, angry at his treatment, his perceived mistreatment due to class or you know, whatever. Or his personality. I guess it's hard to know which is, how much was one and the other. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know. But class was certainly a, a big part of it. And um, he's frustrated. He's trying to decide what to do. He's not the most ethical guy in the world. And um, the J- Imperial Japanese Navy had an, uh, a, an office in London, in Westminster. And one day he just walked in there. Uh, these Japanese were looking for British aircraft technology. He walks in and he says, hello, I'd like to speak with you. My name is Rutland. And the the Japanese officers there said, we know exactly who you are and come on in. Wow. And so this expertise that he's garnered through his sheer um, being close to the technology, studying it, being someone who was consulted, he starts sharing information about aircraft, about aircraft carriers. Now, is there anything illegal about this when he starts doing it? It's tricky. It, it, it's tricky. Um, it, in theory, it was not. But um, the Japanese came up with a, a little bit of a, a, a clever lie to the British that the British never figured out. And they offered him an, uh, a contract from the Mitsubishi Corporation. Uh, that was a subterfuge. He was actually working directly for the Imperial Japanese Navy. And the British didn't know that. And that would have definitely been illegal. And what was the compensation he was being provided by the Japanese Royal Navy? It it was unbelievable. Um, You know, I've worked with a lot of folks uh, who are currently on active duty in the Japanese Naval Forces today, and they've pulled all the documents back then. His compensation was roughly 10x uh, the highest paid Japanese admiral. Wow. Now, and I know you got a hold of some books, some like memoirs from from military leaders in Japan back during World War One. Is that right? That had long gone out of print or were never actually published? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the Japanese side of the story was thought to have been lost because um, when uh, right after the A-bombings and the capitulation of Japan, the Japanese uh, burned a lot of their espionage files. They, they thought correctly that they'd be on trial and they burned them. And the story was thought to be lost. However, uh, a lot of these Japanese officers wrote their memoirs, and they probably wrote them in the 1950s. Maybe they sold have 50 copies, and uh, my colleagues found them. All right. We're talking with the author of Beverly Hills Spy, uh, the double agent war hero who helped Japan attack Pearl Harbor, Ronald Drapkin with us, to talk about the story of Frederick Rutland, who actually came to Los Angeles with his second wife. What brought him to L.A. and a home in the Hollywood Hills? Yeah, the the Japanese uh, really appreciated his efforts. He had helped design their aircraft carriers, all sorts of things. And in the 30s, really, Los Angeles was their key espionage target. You know, we had in L.A. a few things, primarily 70 percent of aircraft production, as well as the U.S. Port Pacific complex, fleet. complex, yeah. Yeah, Lockheed here in Burbank, you know, Douglas, uh, all these things. And they really wanted to know what was going on with the latest U.S. aircraft and Navy. What was the cover story Rutland had for moving here? 
Uh, he just told people he was an international businessman, and he kind of <laughs> left it a little vague. <laughs> the old description of, yeah, right. Uh, and and um, they, did they question where his wealth came from? Um, he just, you know, uh, bold as brass, cold as cucumber, just uh, told him he was a rich British thing. And, you know, us, us um, Americans, uh, Angelinos, I, we kind of have a thing for British accents. Oh, we, yeah. You know, it's delivered with this British accent. And we confer we higher intelligence, yeah. greater, greater culture, all kinds of positives. Yeah. When the FBI was tracking Rutland later, you know, their files will say he denotes um, breeding. We'll continue our conversation with Ronald Drapkin, author of Beverly Hills Spy, the double agent war hero who helped Japan attack Pearl Harbor. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So glad to have you with us. We're talking with Ronald Drapkin, author of Beverly Hills Spy, the double agent war hero who helped Japan attack Pearl Harbor. That man is Frederick Rutland, who settled in Los Angeles with his wife and kids, a home in the Hollywood Hills. He's hobnobbing with celebrities like Charlie Chaplin and Boris Karloff, and he's there at start of a, uh, a group called the British United Services Club, which is still in existence in Altadena. But this brought Rutland into contact with British military folk. What were some of the things you suspect or found out that he learned from them? Uh, he, um, you know, he, what he would do is he would just have these parties and he'd invite in his friends, the celebrities, the Boris Karloffs and Nigel Bruce's and even Charlie Chaplin from time to time. And he'd bring in the U.S. admirals from the Pacific Fleet and the uh, American uh, aircraft manufacturing executives. And, you know, espionage sounds a little tricky, but it could be as easy as getting someone drunk and asking them questions. And they just think he's a curious, smart guy probably doesn't occur to him he'd be working for the Japanese naval intelligence. It would be the last thing in the world they would suspect. Yeah. So at at he's funneling this information to Japanese military leaders. And um, at what point does he start getting cold feet? He starts getting cold feet in 1939 when he takes his daughter with him. to. He's going to report out to his uh, handlers in Tokyo. Um, stays in the Imperial Hotel over there, the Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright-designed hotel. And uh, Germany invades Poland, and Japan becomes just martial, and there's troops everywhere. And he thinks he's been really smart up to this point, taking their money for, for really just taking people out drinking and telling what's going on. And he starts to think, holy moly, there really could be a war here. Yeah. And so he's now he's British. He's not American. So maybe he's less concerned about what happens to the United States. Yeah. But um, is he starting to think about what this means for for Britain, especially as it's dealing with, you know, the war in Europe? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's his country's in a war. Uh, he's not involved this time. And um, he, he realized there could be a war between Japan and the U.S. and he'd be on, quote unquote, the wrong side. How does he, to that point, justify this? Like he's, so what does he think Japan is going to use this information for that he's given on on Southern California naval and aircraft facility? How does he think that they might use that that would be benign? I don't think he's really thinking about that that much. He's just having a grand old time. He's talking to admirals and talking to executives and checking out the latest technology and really kind of a legend in his own mind. 
you're, you're writing about what happens as we approach the attack on Pearl Harbor, and you very effectively describe, he's like scurrying around, he's trying to find where to go, and he's, he's, he has connections in Mexico, and um, you know, question is, where is he going to be able to travel? He finds himself back in, in England, and how is he greeted there? Well, he expects to be able to go back to England and become a hero again. And uh, it was a subterfuge again. MI6 and the FBI got together and they said, we need this guy out of Los Angeles. Um, It's just a tremendous embarrassment. And the plane um, lands in Ireland where it goes to to refuel. And he lands there and they take his... um, his passport, and they take his uh, his documents from him. And he's like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah, and he ends up in custody in in um, the U.K. I, I wonder, though, about all the information that when he got cold feet and then he started working with American officials, telling them about his concerns yeah. of an attack coming. How did, what did they do? What did they do once he became a double agent, essentially? Well, you know, the U.S. Navy and the FBI were not on the same page uh, in this case. The, the Navy was, uh, you know, basically believed him, uh, but the FBI did not. Right. And, and why was this all sort of pushed under the rug by J. Edgar Hoover? You know, the, the who is to blame for Pearl Harbor has been a never-ending story here. And um, this was really embarrassing. You know, he was operating in the clear in, in Los Angeles for about eight or nine years. Then he had offered to help the U.S. Navy, and the FBI silenced him about his warnings about the coming attack from the, from the Japanese Navy. So this was very, very embarrassing to the, uh, to the FBI, and so they kept it quiet. They, kept, they covered it up. What was the embarrassment to the FBI, just that for so long he was funneling this information to Japanese officials? Oh, uh, well, there was that, but it was also that he tried to help the U.S. Navy and warn them about what was coming, and the FBI had him silenced. Okay, because the FBI wasn't providing the same. I mean, I'm just trying yeah. to figure out what was the embarrassment in this for the FBI? If this had hit the L.A. Times back then, that um, this uh, British war hero had been not only spying for the Japanese, but had been trying to warn the FBI about Pearl Harbor, and they had they had ignored it, it would have been uh, it would have been very embarrassing. And this fits in, of course, to the larger scholarship of you know why, with ample warning and concerns about the potential for a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, why there was not a concerted effort to follow up. Looking at the additional information that you've gleaned from Rutland, what what's your thought about that? Yeah, it, I think it's very clear, you know, that the initial uh, fault for Pearl Harbor was blamed on the admiral and the general on the scene. And there was quite a bit of blame uh, in Washington as well. And I think most historians are, uh, you know, have come to accept this. Okay. We're talking with the author of Beverly Hills Spy, Ronald Drapkin. The book subtitled The Double Agent War Hero Helped Japan Attack attack Pearl Harbor. Did his wife have any knowledge of what, I mean, she had to wonder where this money was coming from. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely positive that she she knew exactly what was going on. Uh, the FBI just didn't think that way yeah. at the time. They just assumed, well, how would she possibly know? <laughs> how would she possibly know? There's actually a quote, uh, one, one of the FBI agents said that he's not the kind of person that would confide in a woman, which is just, you know, in, in our current sensibilities, that's the most ridiculous statement ever. And, and then take us to the final years of his life. So uh, he's released. He's living uh, in, in England. What were his final years like? Um, he had been silenced and put in prison uh, without trial. And he was a tremendously bitter man. 
Uh, he was very angry about his treatment. He had been angry about his treatment the whole time, uh, but even more so. And um, he he was trying to redeem himself. He was writing letters. He was kind of harassing the MI5 agents. But uh, at some point, he just um, he just decided it was wasn't worth it anymore, and decided to end it all. And he he wrote letters I know to his kids, telling them in advance what he was going to do. Yes. Yeah. And it was, uh, they're sort of tragic letters if you read them. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about this incredible story. The book is absolutely fascinating. You mentioned one of the scenes where, where, uh, Rutland takes his daughter to, um, the hotel in Japan and everything's changed. He's taking her for what he thinks he's going to be a good dad and they're going to see the beautiful city and the architecture and this whole pall has fallen over Tokyo. You do such a great job of describing it. I kind of got chills as I was, as I was reading it. Uh, so thank you again. Appreciate you, you being with us. Beverly Hills by the double agent war hero who helped Japan attack Pearl Harbor. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. Just want to let you know, coming up on Monday for President's Day. We're off, but we have a very special two hours on President's Day devoted to Academy Award-nominated films and the people in those movies. Sandra Hewler of Anatomy of a Fall, Alexander Payne, director of The Holdovers, Coleman Domingo of Rustin, Christopher Nolan, director of Oppenheimer, Celine Song of Past Lives, and more are part of that two-hour special Monday at 9. Make sure you catch it. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. It's on trend for a world rapidly warming due to climate change. I'm LA's senior science reporter, Jacob Margolis, and I help Southern Californians understand the science of our imperfect paradise. It is not unprecedented at all for fires in the western U.S. to affect cities on the eastern seaboard. So that we can better protect our environment and prepare for natural disasters as the climate continues to change. There's a giant mass of warm water stretching from Alaska down to California. independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, our week-long series devoted to love looks at sex and its importance, or in some cases, lack of importance in romantic relationships. We'll hear from listeners. What role does sex play in your love relationship? And what level of priority do you give it? That's coming up on Air Talk. And if you've been with someone for a long period of time, has that evolved over time in one direction or the other? We'll hear about that from listeners coming up. Austin, very fortunate this week because he's filling in uh, all days except uh, today's, my lone day hosting this week. 
week. And he gets to talk about so many different aspects of love in this Valentine's uh, week. So very, very nice. Uh, We turn our attention now to short-term rental housing in unincorporated Los Angeles. Uh, The L.A. County Board of Supervisors have been struggling with this issue as elected bodies have been essentially in any desirable part of the world, I think, because with Airbnb and Verbo short-term rentals, you have the opportunity, of course, for people who are property owners to maybe help pay their mortgage or bring in some extra income. Uh, The flip side of that is what it can mean to communities with houses turned into party houses and, and all the downside of not having the kind of stable residential community they've been used to. Well, joining us to update us on what the supervisors of L.A. County have done is LAist reporter covering housing, David Wagner. David, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So what specifically is is the board looking at doing here? Yeah, so the county's board of supervisors voted yesterday to advance these new regulations for short-term rentals. This would only apply to unincorporated parts of L.A. County, so, you know, limited geography here. The upshot is that the rules would, um, you know, ban hosts on platforms like Airbnb and Verbo from renting out properties that they don't personally live in. Um, And like you said, these plans have been in the works since 2019. They still need another vote before finally taking effect, but this has been the the biggest step they've taken so far. And what kind of um, public response have they gotten at the supervisors meetings I assume you know competing thoughts from stakeholders yeah absolutely I mean a lot of uh, speakers um, people that I interviewed for this story were in favor of these rules you know they say that they've seen ordinary family-owned homes in their neighborhoods turn into basically businesses where people are buying up these properties uh, they're renting them out to people who come and party and disrupt the community noise um, and, you know, take away housing that could be reserved for um, homeowners, for renters. So there are definitely people in favor of these rules. There were other people that lined up to say, you know, hey, I'm not some Airbnb mogul. Um, I'm just renting out, you know, maybe my backyard granny flat to make some extra income. Um, And these rules could potentially stop me from doing that. Um, the rules, you know, they do uh, limit people to only renting out their primary residence. So you couldn't, you know, rent out investment properties, second homes. Um, In some cases, the way the rules are written right now, you couldn't even rent out that backyard ADU. The supervisors are still discussing this. We'll see how the rules morph and change before the final vote. But that was a big concern for a lot of speakers saying, you know, I should be able to rent out my ADU if I'm on site to deal with issues that might come up with guests. Now, they can still do, of course, the long term term ADU rental. It's just this the short-term rentals that they would not be That's able right. to do. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this being a huge issue in Palm Springs, where they put a cap on the number of permits uh, based on the districts because uh, residents you know, were concerned people were buying their second homes in Palm Springs and essentially financing that through significant numbers of short-term rentals to help pay the mortgage. So I assume part of this, that's why we're talking about only primary residents being allowed to do this. They don't want people essentially running this as a business. That's right. That That's that's the goal that the county supervisors are outlining here. Um, and, you know, the extent to which short-term rentals 
fuel LA's housing crisis. That's been a subject of much research and debate. There have been studies looking at uh, the impacts of short-term rentals, you know, taking away apartments and homes from the long-term rental and home buying market. Uh, companies like Airbnb and Verbo have, you know, disputed some of those findings. Um, so this is a an issue that has been a big deal in LA, Palm Springs, other as you say, in-demand areas. Yes, desirable areas, quote-unquote, because <laughs> people want to visit and, and want to rent uh, units. David Wagner, LAist reporter covering housing. We reached out to uh, Verbo and Airbnb, invited them to join our conversation. Airbnb responded to our request but was unable to make a company representative available for this segment. And as of uh, our uh, coming on air with the segment, we have not yet received a response from Verbo. I'd like to hear from you. If you're someone who lives in an unincorporated area like Altadena, Marina del Rey, East Los Angeles, Topanga, you want to share your thoughts about this. If you're a property owner, what you if you see it infringing on your ability to rent your property, if you're a longtime resident and feel that short-term rentals have really damaged the quality of life in your community, share your thoughts about uh, where we stand on, on these proposed rental regulations. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Erica in Topanga, good to have you with us. What do you think of the proposal? Hi, thank you. Um, I think as it's written, it, it will eliminate my ability to keep my home, which I live in. Um, I'm a single mother. I started my life over in 2014. I bought my property that has a guest house on it with the intentions of being able to use my property for long-term affordability for myself and my daughter. Um, This ordinance would tell me that I couldn't do what I've been doing, and that is rent out my house part-time throughout the year when my daughter's at her father's and um, go up and stay in my guest house. It says I can't do that. It says I have to live in my house with guests now it just this ordinance what it's trying to do is it's trying to just eliminate any type of way that we all are trying to make ends meet in los angeles period i wouldn't have purchased my home in the area i wanted to for my daughter to be raised um if i didn't have that additional source of income can can erica Um, can you do a longer term rental of your adu and get anywhere near the amount of income as you do with short-term rentals? Well, I mean, that would mean that I have to move out of my primary residence, my home, and uh, rent out my main house. And I'm no, I thought, I thought you said you had an ADU. And, uh, uh, I do. I have a, I have a guest house. And that's, you could rent that out. ADU you? is different yeah. than a guest house. Oh, okay. Period. Okay. All an right. ADU is a additional, essentially, it has a kitchen. Right, a guest house. You're not allowed to have a kitchen in there. It is a oh, guest okay. house. It's a granny flat. Um, you are not allowed to collect rent on a guest house. I can't rent out my guest house per zoning laws. I could rent out my main house, and I scooch up to my guest house as the you know as Got laws it. are now. Yeah. As long and I keep my eye on my home, and if any rules are broken, people are out. And you know, I lock up the rooms that I don't want them in, and that's fine. And that's really been my affordability when my daughter's been in her father's to be able to do yeah. so and pay property taxes and 
Erica, I really appreciate your call. Thank you for sharing the hardship this would present to you. Uh, David, she also mentioned enforcement. You know, to what extent is the county going to be able to enforce this? Because I know in the city of L.A., it's it's been very challenging for them. That's the big question, and we'll have to see how that shakes out. But you're right, you know. These kinds of regulations have been on the books for years now in other parts of L.A., the city of Santa Monica, the city of L.A. Um, you know, hosts can be fined quite a lot of money for each uh, day that they violate rules in the city of L.A. But to be honest, enforcement has been spotty. Those citations, those fines have been pretty limited. Um, even proponents of these rules say that illegal activity in the city of L.A. is still pretty rampant, pretty common. Uh, just over the weekend, L.A. police said that two people were shot at a home in the Hollywood Hills that was apparently being rented out for a Super Bowl party. You, uh, In the story that you wrote, uh, you quote also a 2022 study, I believe it was, looking at listings in the city of L.A. That's right. And what did it show in terms of the legality of the listings? Yeah, this was a study done by a McGill University urban planning professor, and it was, yeah, toward the end of 2022, he looked at listings in the city of L.A. and, based on different criteria, concluded that almost half of the listings that he could see on platforms like Airbnb appeared to be breaking the city's law. All right. Uh, Marion View Park emailed, Our once quiet, cohesive block was ruined by the Airbnb house directly across the street. The owner of the property clearly values greed over respect for those of us who live on the block. We've seen, like others plagued with Airbnbs in their neighborhoods, loud parties, violence, parking woes, disdain from visitors, quote-unquote, and a general disruption of this once peaceful place. I would love to see short-term rentals outlawed entirely. That's Mary in View Park. Lee in Altadena emailed, I have zero sympathy for anybody relying on short-term rental income to cover a mortgage. Homes were built in neighborhoods with zoning, not to be hotels. Just because somebody had an idea and created an app in a company doesn't mean it's okay to do it. And if there weren't rules in place when someone bought the home, they had every reason to expect it could happen. People who own homes in neighborhoods shouldn't be forced to endure what's essentially a tiny hotel just because someone else wants to earn that income. David and Altadena emailed the worst part of this proposed legislation is a broad brush it paints across what is in fact a very, very diverse county. One size does not fit all. Topaz in Topanga says, I don't agree with the ordinance. It's an overreach. It feels like it's blaming people instead of empowering them economically. Michelle in Altadena, I think it's disappointing to see our Board of Supervisors make no changes despite hearing from homeowners in the community. One size fits all does not fit everyone, especially those with small units to rent. And Javier in Pasadena says, I totally support tougher regulations as a renter myself. I've seen how the amount of housing is diminished because of so many short-term rentals. Uh, Let's talk with Sandra in Altadena. Good to have you with us, Sandra. What do you think of these proposed restrictions on Airbnbs in unincorporated L.A. County? Sandra, for some reason we're having trouble hearing you. Let's uh, see if we can clean up that line while we talk with Melissa in Long Beach. Melissa, what do you think of this, uh, this ordinance? Hi. Yeah, I think I'd like to speak on behalf of a community that um, depends on short-term rentals, and that's um, the childhood cancer community. My son is battling a really awful brain tumor, and we've had to move multiple places to be near different hospitals for his treatment. 
and we haven't had a, uh, the ability to stay in a long-term lease nor um, the ability to stay in a hotel because we needed, you know, amenities that a short-term rental can offer. Um, so I just think that not everybody visiting a short-term rental is meaning to disrespect the property or party or have an impact on the community. Um, folks like us need these type of options and um, do respect others' homes. And um, again, not a one-size-fits-all that I heard another caller mention on. I think I agree with that wholeheartedly. Melissa, thank you very much. We appreciate it, and we wish your son all the best in in um, that ongoing treatment. Thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Sandra and Altadina, I think we've got you now. What do you think of this? Hi, Larry. Yes, uh, uh, I, I live in Altadena, too. And I have a small cleaning business, and I clean ADUs, so it's a ripple effect. It not only affects the ADU person who's renting, but all the services that that service the ADUs. All right, Sandra, thank you so much. Uh, Linda in Los Feliz emailed, the reason the city council took this on is because so many of the rental houses have become party houses and wrecked neighborhood quality of life. If the owners of these homes had been more attentive to the behavior of tenants, this wouldn't have happened. There's no enforcement of this because in Los Angeles, the LAPD isn't tasked with enforcement. Who is enforcing? So who in the county would be enforcing, David? I believe you'd have to register with the uh, tax assessor and collector, um, and they would be overseeing this program. Um, that is a question that has plagued some programs in other cities, though. In uh, the city of L.A., enforcement is, you know, citations and fines and enforcement are split between, um, you know, I believe the housing department, the planning department, other departments are involved. And it can be confusing for uh, people to know who to complain to when they see this kind of activity activity in their neighborhood, when they think that rent control departments are being used as uh, Airbnb listings, Verbo listings. Um, it's, you know, split. It's bifurcated. It's confusing. Well, and if, if LAPD is coming out for calls of, like, disturbing the peace or things like that LAPD would be, but they, but they can't go any deeper than that. It's a whole other city department, which may not be staffed up to respond quickly at, you know, who knows how long it's going to take them. That's got to be incredibly frustrating for residents. Yeah, and, and I've heard in the past from uh, people who say they've reached out repeatedly to um, various city departments in the city of L.A. And, and just really not heard anything back about their concerns. Marie and Hawthorne emailed with the new SoFi Stadium in Inglewood. It would be nice to rent an ADU or granny flat for short term for events, save hotel costs for fans. This new ruling would prevent the community in unincorporated areas, parts of Hawthorne and Lenox, from potential earnings that help them keep their property in this expensive area. David, thanks so much. So there's another reading of this ordinance, is that right? Yeah, this is not a done deal. Uh, This is, I think, scheduled to come back in about a month. Another tiny little wrinkle just to mention on this, the California Coastal Commission is going to play a role in approving some of these rules in certain areas like Marina del Rey, Catalina Island, because they are also tasked with making sure that visitors can access low-cost accommodations along the coastline. All right, David, thanks so much. We'll look forward to your continuing coverage at LAist.com as well as on all our programs here on LAist 89.3. David Wagner covers housing for LA.
guest. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up on Air Talk, Love Week continues for Valentine's Week. Sex and love is our topic coming up. We're going to be talking about the role sex plays in your love relationship. And has that evolved over the years? Is sex a larger or smaller part of your relationship than it's been in the past? Does sex play really no role? And yet you have a very intimate, loving relationship, but uh, sex is not really a part of it. I'd like to hear from you about how sex plays a role or doesn't in your loving relationship. We're at 866-893-5722. Back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Love Week on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I'm no Barry White, though. Uh, but we're going to talk about sex and what role it has in loving relationships. And of course, as in everything else with relationships, highly customizable, and people have different priorities in different aspects of uh, their primary intimate relationship. I'd like to hear from you, particularly if the role of sex in your relationship has evolved over the years, uh, and if sex is is an extremely important part of your relationship, I'd be interested in hearing why, what, what you see as the practical function it serves in the relationship, aside from the recreational joys of sex, and if it's something that is not really a big part of your intimate relationship, Um, how that feels to you and whether you feel anything missing or not or whether it's just it's it's um, it just really doesn't serve an important function at this point. We're at 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Joining me is Kinsey Institute educated sex educator Emily Nagoski, who's author of Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Emily, thanks so much. Good to have you with us today. It's my pleasure to talk to you. Uh, So let's talk first of all about, uh, I'm presuming there's no right or wrong here, that relationships are almost infinitely customizable. Um, Do you think that there's any shoulds when it comes to sex in an intimate relationship? 
Absolutely, there are no shoulds. One of the things you hear sex educators say all the time is we need to stop shoulding on ourselves. There is no right or wrong. There's just what works for you we should spell in this that relationship. Out, yeah. And this season, shoulding, shoulding. You have you have <laughs> you have good you diction, so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and so, uh, do you think that there are a lot of couples who, for whom maybe sex has never been a huge part, or over the years sex has become less a part of it, that there are feelings of guilt or failure that even if even if both partners agree and are okay with that, feelings that something's wrong with them doing that? Absolutely. There are cultural messages that surround us everywhere saying that sex is supposed to be a huge part of our lives. All of us are supposed to want, like, and have a lot of sex. And that's just not reality. For some couples, by choice, sex is not a priority in their relationship. Goodness knows we have plenty of other things to to fill up our time and attention. And there are couples for whom sex is a priority and because our lives can be very stressful, it has dropped down the priority list until life becomes more susceptible to creating an environment where our brains can access pleasure. We're talking with Emily Nagoski, author of Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Also with us, a frequent guest on Air Talk, John Sovic, a queer therapist and coach who specializes in working with LGBT plus communities. Uh, he works on creating sex positive and affirming relationships. John, so good to have you back with us. It's nice to be back. And it's fascinating, too, because as a queer person, I grew up in a world where there wasn't necessarily a framework, a design, a plan for how I was supposed to have relationships in my life. For a lot of cisgender and straight people, I mean, you get this manual and your brain basically says this is how it's supposed to be. And what that does is it opens up a really unique prospect to create our own version in queer relationships of sex and intimacy and love. And I think that's actually really exciting. Well, let's, and let's take one aspect. So for gay men, for example, are there certain cultural shoulds and shouldn'ts and expectations around sex within um gay male relationships? Well, I think there's a kind of a misunderstanding of kind of a, a hypersexualized understanding of gay male relationships. But just like Emily said, each person is going to decide what their relationship is going to look like, how they want to relate, how they want to bring sex into that relationship. For some people, sex is not a big part of it. For others, it's a really big part, and they have to learn how to negotiate, to talk about it, to understand each other's needs, and find a way to build a bridge of how sex is going to work for them and how they're going to connect it to love. All right. So I, I, I really want to hear from you as an AirTalk listener. This program will rise and fall on listeners sharing their firsthand experiences. So I know you might be a little shy in talking about sex and uh, the place that it holds in your relationship, but I'm really interested in getting your input on the importance of sex in your relationship. What do you what do you see as, as the benefit it, it provides to your relationship, again, beyond just the pleasure of the moment? And if you're someone for whom sex is not a big part of your relationship, share with us what are some of the other things that maybe become uh, come to the fore instead of sex and you would think of as, as more definitive of, of ways of bonding in your relationship. 866-893-5722. That's 866 8 
893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Jessica in Pasadena emailed, I didn't think sex was that important in long-term relationships until I had great sex. After being married for a decade, I'm now in a 10-year relationship with a man who's interested in my pleasure. And now I think sex is very important. I want to have sex with him a lot because my pleasure is a priority as well as his. Having good sex with a partner is one of the fastest ways to intimacy for me. That's Jessica in Pasadena. 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Emily Nagoski, I wonder if you want to respond to what Jessica wrote to us. Yes, especially with reference to the idea of queer relationships versus heterosexual relationships. The research has been remarkably consistent for a couple of decades now that people in heterosexual relationships have lower quality sex, they have fewer orgasms, they have less sexual and relationship satisfaction than people in non-heterosexual type relationships. So I have an entire chapter specifically about the patriarchy. What, yeah, what's your theory about Yeah, your theory about that? So it's Uh, largely women's dissatisfaction that skews that number? It's sort of, but the way that the gender scripts that we absorb affect us are just as toxic to cisgender men in this system, but they have been trained that they're not allowed to notice the ways that they are dissatisfied, the ways they've been cut off from their longing for intimacy, their experience of loneliness, their longing for their own pleasure, as opposed to sex as a performance to prove their masculinity. Everybody is less satisfied in this system. And the more they fight against those rules and regulations, the better off they are, which a lot of queer couples have already done a lot of that self-liberation and relationship liberation because their relationship already violates so many of the rules that they were taught early in their lives they were supposed to follow. John? Well, it's interesting to you because I think the beautiful word that Jessica said is pleasure that she and her partner are searching for pleasure together. And that's part of what happens sometimes in long-term relationships. As Emily was saying, we do get distracted by life. We have children, we have jobs, we have stress, we have mortgages. And all of those things distract from this really amazing human thing that our bodies can do, which is experience pleasure. These wonderful chemicals get thrown out into our body when we have sex and we when we connect with someone through intimacy. And it's so important to have these conversations with our partner is what pleasures us, what pleasures you, and how can we make that a vital part of our relationship and use that as an expression of our love for each other. And it it seems to me that, and again, I I understand that uh, there are many relationships for which sex is not... Um, not something that really is is a part of the relationship. I think that's fine. I think one of the advantages of sex is it there is in the communication of the physical act or acts of sex, there is there is something that's bonding in a way other than just other physical manifestations or words. And and I wonder, Emily, maybe you can speak to that. What is the power of sex in its reinforcement of intimacy? The magic that can happen during an erotic encounter is this sense of your individual identity dissolving into a shared identity and even into a universal identity. And the 
chemistry underlying the experience absolutely is part of it. I will say it's not that different from experiences we can have dancing with other people or singing with other people, but because we are mammals, we have access to this particular route of experiencing a sense of union with the universe that uh, is really good for our health. And yeah, and and there's a physical reaction that other other things that we do. It's not quite the same. I know there's runners high. There are other different, you know, oxytocin releasing things. But but sex is sort and of it's the pinnacle. Pleasure <laughs> specifically, yeah. it's the sexual pleasure. People think it's orgasm. It's not. The higher the intensity of pleasure, the more we get those neurochemical reactions, whether That's or not orgasm happens. Very interesting. Emily Nagoski with us, Kinsey-educated sex educator, author of Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. John Sovic, a frequent guest with us on AirTalk, queer therapist and coach. He specializes in working with clients who are LGBTQ+. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at 8 comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Caleb in Pasadena emailed, I'm in a same-sex relationship, and I came to realize I'm on the asexual spectrum and have very little interest in sex. It required a conversation with my partner, but we've adapted, and both of us feel very connected and intimate without sex. Quality time together or other forms of touch, like hugs, cuddles, etc., is more satisfying for both of us than sex, and we feel close and very much in love. Caleb, thank you. John, I wonder if you had a relationship where, you know, one of the participants, sex was not, they were asexual, essentially, and the other, sex was very important. Um, do you think a relationship like that could work if if the one for whom sex was important was given freedom to have sex outside of the relationship, or is that generally not workable. So I think this is a conversation between the members in the relationship. <laughs> and it is important, and Caleb said this so beautifully, there are other ways that's just than sexual intimacy. There's, and they're in agreement on Yeah, this. and there's physical intimacy, there's emotional interest, there's having experiences together, there's sharing values together. And if you have a base of intimacy already in the relationship, then you could, with your partner or partners, have conversations about, do we need an open relationship as a means to satisfy whatever your sexual needs are, which are not the same as mine? And that is something that I think is unique in queer conversations, is that we, once again, because we don't have that rule book, have said, how can we work to make sure that everybody in the relationship is finding the pleasure they need? And if I could encourage my you know, cisgender straight couples to look at this model, this deep communication, this understanding of intimacy, and pushing against these social constructs of monogamy being the only authentic way to be in a loving relationship, I think a lot of us could be a lot happier and have much more fulfilling sexual experiences that satisfy us and satisfy ourselves in our relationships. Now, you talking about polyamory. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, that there are couples that might benefit from it, but it's a taboo to explore that. It is, yeah. And those social constructs of taboo are all over everything we do here in the United States. And I sometimes think, and I hear it in Emily's voice, if we can shake up those taboos, we can have more honest conversations with our partners and then find the pleasure we are seeking. It's so scary. Uh, We'll continue. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. 
Sex is so loaded with so many different stresses and pressures. Uh, but of course, the power of sex is profound. I'd love to hear from listeners to what extent is sex a focal point or high priority in your intimate relationship or not? And has that evolved over the years? We're at 866 893 5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back with more with Emily and John in just a minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by queer therapist and coach John Sovic. And Emily Nagoski is a Kinsey Institute educated sex educator and author of Come Together, the Art or the Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. I'd like to hear from you to what extent sex plays a role in your intimate relationship. Has it changed over the years? Is sex perhaps the most important part? And why? What what does it provide that makes that so important to the other aspects, the other bonding, the other ways you work well together as a couple? Or if sex has never been or has become a very low priority or not a part of your relationship, um, you feel a loss at all in that or not? 866-893-5722. Karen in Silver Lake email my partner and I are married 45 years. When our children were growing up and we were working, sex wasn't at all frequent. Now that we're retired and have time, we've rediscovered each other's bodies and it's terrific. Toys are introduced. Wow. We now frequently enjoy an hour or more of sex time. Karen, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Dean in Pasadena emailed, sex is huge to me, but I can have the same great sex with a stranger or with my lover. Is that weird? As a heterosexual, is it me or do men need sex more frequently than women? John? I would suggest that that is another one of those beautiful mythologies that got put out into the world. I think the idea we need to understand is how we each, in our different genders, receive and experience pleasure and sex. And that's actually where the, where the differences occur. And I love the fact that um, Karen was talking about sex and aging and that they're taking their time with sex and exploring with sex. And that, to me, is another big piece of the puzzle. Um, for so much sexual energy here in the U.S. especially, we look at the idea of uh, achieving orgasm and penetration as what sex is about. Out. And what Karen describes is ideas. No, we're exploring, we're playing, we're bringing into the things to bring pleasure into the conversation. And so the same thing can occur whether you're in a male identified body or a female identified body, that finding what pleasures you is actually where we can find where our sexual peaks and valleys are. And so this idea that men are driven more sexually than women, I think, is a mythology that we need to let go of and loosen up a little bit. Because once again, we're looking at a patriarchal story here. Emily Nagoski, your thoughts on this? Oh, yes, there is enormous variability, and it's not defined by a person's gender how much interest they have in having sex. If there is a gender difference, it might be that people who identify as women experience their sexuality as more sensitive to context, which is to say the external circumstances and their internal state. But again, there is enormous variability. Uh, but on the subject of aging also, there's a wonderful book called Magnificent Sex, in which Peggy Klein Platz and Dana Maynard talk about their research studying people who have extraordinary, optimal sexual experiences. And when I heard 
heard Peggy teach, she says that the typical age at which her research participants had their first experience of optimal sexual experiences was 55 years old. Wow. Uh, so it takes time. Definitely. I love that. Optimal sexual experiences. That's a great, a great, is that like a, a numerical scale that they determine that or how, how is it? It's a qualitative description. They yeah. ask for people who, who experience themselves as having really exceptionally good sex. And they asked, so what does this sex look like? And it looks nothing like what the standard cultural narrative says. They don't talk about desire at all. They don't talk about how frequently they have sex. They talk about pleasure. Of course, they talk about intimacy and authenticity and vulnerability. This is sex where everyone involved is glad to be there and gets to show up as their full authentic self without shame or fear of being judged. We're talking with Emily Nagoski, author of Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections, and John Sovic, queer therapist and coach. Uh, Jess in Marina Del Rey, I understand you're a relationship coach. Welcome to Air Talk. Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, and I can agree with everything that the panelists, and I have actually read her book, Come Together. It's a fantastic book. And I'm in a relationship with a woman who's substantially older than me. And sex is not necessarily about the, uh, the orgasm and the patriarchy rule that we've all been told. It has to do with how much attention can you pay to the person. And if you build up the trust and the communication first, yes, it can go hours at a time. And that's what it should be because it's all about building that intimacy together. All right, Jess, I appreciate it very much. Thank you, 866-893-5722. John and Carson emailed from a heterosexual married male perspective. I always had anxiety about an accidental pregnancy, uh, even with birth control. After uh, having the SNP recently, our sex life has flourished, I think because that fear is gone. John, can can you speak to the things like this, because this is one of many different fears or concerns that can intrude in people being able to really give themselves over to sex. Mm -hmm. So there are so many barriers and stories that we were taught when we were growing up. This idea of having major anxiety about accidental pregnancy. This sounds like John is a responsible person and he's been taught this idea. But other things that come into play often too is Uh, For males, the idea of size, the idea of performance, about being able to offer the right kind of pleasure. All of these fears and anxieties have been taught in how we are supposed to approach sex. In females, there's been this kind of submissive energy that's been mythologized in the world as how they become the most pleasurable thing to their partner. And all of these mythologies add up to create anxiety when we're just trying to bring two people together who want to have some fun, enjoy themselves, to celebrate their bodies. And if we can shed some of those things, and I think body image is a huge piece of the puzzle. It gets in the way for a lot of people having sexual intimacy. Probably even more so for younger people on social media all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we could release some of those barriers that we put into place and just see the spirit, the energy, the beauty of the person sitting across from that, and that that be the beginning of intimacy, and then learn from each other and find pleasure, and then take that into sexual connection, that dropping all 
of those preconceived notions that cause the anxiety are the ways for us best to connect with the people that we want to connect in love, intimacy, and sex with. Lindsay is line producing today. She's heard of people who were paralyzed with fear about sexually transmitted um, infections, that that is, is a, such a fear for them. And, and, you know, particularly, I think, for young people who grew up with the shadow of uh, HIV and AIDS, that that has been uh, had a real chilling effect for many. And the thing is, all of these things can have a chilling effect at the same time that can just become awareness. If we are taking care of our sexual health, if we're a sexually active person, if we're you know, having regular checks up and screenings, we can manage our, our exposure to these SDIs and we can have a very wonderful, positive, sexually active life simply by being responsible for ourselves and being responsible for the partners we connect with. Kim in Malibu emailed, I'm thrilled Emily Nagoski's one of your guests. I'm currently reading her book, Come As You Are. Her discussion about how anxiety and its triggering of our fight-or-flight response can put the brakes on sexual interest really landed with me and my experiences. This book is so insightful. Both my partner and I had a lack of family love and support, and we found for us sex plays a huge role in filling up those needs that we didn't get filled as children. It's a big part of our connection and bonding. I think we both value the closeness and intimacy in ways I haven't experienced with other partners. He also cares about my pleasure, and like your earlier comment, that's changed my level of interest in sex. In this relationship, we both care about each other's enjoyment. That's Kim in Malibu. 866-893-5722-866. 893-5722. We're taking your calls about the role of sex in loving relationships all this week. Air Talk devoting itself to love. It's Valentine's week. Austin Cross will be in tomorrow and Friday also talking about aspects of love. Today, it's sex. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, John Sovic with us, queer therapist and coach, and Emily Nagoski, who is author of Come Together, the Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. She's a sex educator. Let me read more listener comments that are coming in. Our topic of sex and love. David and Van Nuys, I've been in a relationship with my husband for 27 years. As we got older, sex fell by the wayside. My partner has a tendency of taking this personally. Sex identifies him. For me, it's a new chapter in life. It doesn't make a difference to me. David, thank you for that. John, what do you do when there is um, differential interest in sex like that? And they've been together almost three decades. Well, it's interesting because I'm not sure if I hear a differential in sex in this conversation with David. I hear that maybe they have taken the priority of it off their list. And so it's interesting to me because I think it's really amazing having sex in a long-term relationship because what you do is you have someone you know really well. You have the ability to communicate better and you have a level of intimacy and trust that maybe someone who's just starting to date doesn't have. So why not build on those factors and figure out what kind of sexual life would you like to have for yourselves? 
And we talked about Karen, and she's like, uh, she was quite a bit older, and she was talking about it's exciting. She's exploring. She's learning. It's exciting to read of her excitement. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the thing is to look at it. It's like, David, what do you want to create with your partner? Are there things maybe that you haven't communicated to each other over the years that would help you re-explore and reignite your sexual connection, knowing that you have those 27 years of history to trust each other in the bedroom? Uh, let's take another listener uh, comment. Nancy in Long Beach emailed, I'm a lesbian, but I was also married to a man before I came out. In both long-term relationships with my ex-husband and ex-wife, the amount of sex we had depended a lot on how I was feeling about my partner at that time and if we were having problems in the relationship. In both, when I felt unhappy, the amount of sex we had decreased. Nancy, I, I really appreciate that. And I think that that makes sense. That's how, you know, for, for many of us, sex is linked to our feel, whether we're angry or feeling disconnected with uh, our partner. But Emily, I, I wonder, because sex can also be, um, pardon the expression, a lubricant in a relationship. It can help bring people together also. So is there ever a case to be made for prescriptive sex? Oh, prescriptive sex, no, but individualized exploration, yes, always. One of the questions I ask people to explore in my workshops is, what is it that you want when you want sex? Because it's not just physical release. Most people can do that on their own, and if they can't, there are whole workshops and books just about that. But what is it that you want when you want someone else to be there involved? And the number one thing people say is connection, is because sex itself, nothing bad happens to you physically if you don't have sex, but our health is impacted. We can sicken and die of loneliness. And for some people, sex is a primary way of experiencing connection in a relationship. People also talk about shared pleasure, the experience of being or feeling wanted, and of course, the freedom to stop paying attention to all the stressors and roles and identities that we have to fulfill in our actual lives. Close the door on all that and just focus on the pleasurable things happening in the here and now. It goes far beyond just wanting the physical experience and much deeper into our identities and our shared connection. We have uh, Jeannie and Cerritos who emailed, what about the impact of sexual violence experienced by so many? This continues to inhibit pleasure even in a long-term marriage. Any hint of pressure or force or demand sparks withdrawal. It's improved a lot over the years with an extremely sensitive partner, but never 100% disappeared. That's Jeannie in Cerritos. Emily? Yes, it is. One day I'll write a book about sex that doesn't have to talk about trauma, but that is not this book. Um, what happens in the brain when we experience sexual trauma is the mechanism that controls sexual response is the dual control mechanism that has an accelerator that responds to any sex-related stimuli. But then there's also a break that responds to things that are perceived as threats. And when sex is used against us as a weapon, your brain learns that this sex-related stimulus that activates the accelerator also is a threat, so it also hits the brakes. So the process of healing from trauma is the experience of decoupling the sense that something sex-related is happening from the experience that it is a potential threat. And it's like unlearning a lot of phobias and people heal from trauma all the time. It is a gradual process, but it takes care and support in order for that healing to happen. 
and it does happen every day. Franya in Pasadena, we're very short on time, but please share with us your experience. Thank you. Um, I had I, I learned about oh, 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, from a man who was advising some couples. Um, my partner and I were together for 48 years, and I would say the last five years or so, I used the technique that I learned from this, this guru, I guess you could call it. At any rate, he said, uh, sometimes it takes about five days to lead up to a uh, very satisfying sexual relationship, sexual experience for both partners. Um, for the last five years or so, uh, before my partner passed away, I used that technique of leading up to uh, intimacy. Uh, I, I, I just did it for five days yeah. uh, with touching, uh, extra loving. It was very successful. Um, that's not to say we didn't have sex uh, times, for instance. He had a habit of waking up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and uh, being very intimate. Wanting wanting to, uh, yeah. Really worked. Uh, Franya, we're we're so tied on time, but I really appreciate your call. So, John, what what do you think of of an approach like that, um, allowing the build over, say, five days? So I also happen to have a life as a yoga teacher, and we are looking at all kinds of different approaches to sex that are outside of the ways we've been taught that sex is supposed to exist. And it can be beautiful to make the sexual experience a, a, a longer experience, a, a thing of heightening sensation, uh, a piece of using pleasure in ways that aren't leading to orgasm all the time. And so, yeah, it can be an incredibly valuable thing. But I also say it this way. There are as many different kinds of sex as many times as you want to have sex. Sometimes it might just be for fun. Sometimes it might be a playful thing. Sometimes it might be a way to look into your partner and create intimacy. Sometimes it might be a planned out experience like like this. You're actually going on a journey together. And sometimes it's just for getting off. And I think it's got to be okay that we understand it's not just one thing. And we and our partners get to design what it is for us. John, thank you so much as always. Always fun to have you on the program and sharing your expertise on this. Thanks very much. Thank you. John Sovic, Pasadena-based therapist, specializes in working with LGBTQ plus uh, clients in his practice. And Emily Nagoski, who's a sex educator and author of Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Emily, thank you so much for coming on. You've got an open invitation. Look forward to having you come back. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Just a reminder, Austin Cross is in for me tomorrow and Friday. Uh, I'll be back with you following President's Day on Tuesday, and I'll be with you, of course, for Film Week on Friday. And just want to let you know, Monday for President's Day, when we're off for the holiday, the two hours of Air Talk are totally devoted to big names, actors and directors of Oscar-nominated films. The interviews I've done thus far, you'll hear it Monday at 9 o'clock. Have a great day. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.